host on It's Undressed. My name is Nick. And my name is Rachel. And today we're going to be talking about memory. Uh, but before we get started, uh, I guess we should take some time to introduce ourselves. Uh, we kind of forgot to do that in our first episode, and uh, I know that there's been some interest in kind of our background and why we have chosen to um, you know, start this podcast and you know where we get our enthusiasm from neuroscience from. So, Rachel, you want to tell people, give a little, you know, short little bio? Yeah. So, I um, I graduated with a double major in biology and psychology, um, which is kind of, in its own way, an intersection of neuroscience. Um, post-grad, I started studying neuroscience, taking neuroscience courses, and I uh, work in a neuroscience lab that studies the molecular causes of Alzheimer's disease and frontotemporal dementia here at UAB. And Nick, what about you? Okay. Um, so yeah, I uh, got originally got a degree in economics um, and worked in tech for a few years. I was also a barista at Starbucks, like everybody else in this generation. Um, <laughs> and uh, decided uh, after some soul searching that I wanted to um, pursue uh, medical school and also do research. So, um, believe it or not, there is a connection between neuroscience and economics because both deal with human behavior. And I wanted to kind of explore the uh, biological underpinnings of human behavior in the marketplace. And neuroscience was the best fit for that. So, I um, am getting a degree in neuroscience and also working in a lab studying. Um, how we how um, we can use uh, CRISPR technology to um, help uh, treat uh, addiction, possibly. Um. So today we're talking about learning and memory. Um, and in the process of forming memories, we have what's called encoding, storage, and retrieval. Yes, and we can kind of just think of those as like the three stages of memory both acquisition and in use. Um, yeah, well, storage. So yeah, you have you have acquisition and consolidation, which are components of encoding. Right. Um, so I mean, really simply, I guess we'll give a really simple, broad definition of these. Um, though they're pretty straightforward. <laughs> encoding is basically just taking in the memory. Storage is exactly what you think it is. It's storing a memory, and then retrieval is retrieving it for later use. So you know just whether that's drawing up biographical information or procedural memory or um, an emotion because you've been conditioned to say be happy or fearful in a certain context that's all retrieval yes so like why people get super happy when they are in certain locations mm -hmm. or or smells like or smell. you know we always talk about smells are really like a lot of people get really nostalgic about smells um, songs too mm -hmm. yeah and that actually has to do with where the olfactory bulb, which is responsible for smell, where that's related in the brain, it's really close to the hippocampus. And I think we can take a quick break. So back to encoding. Um, with encoding, we have what's called acquisition and consolidation. Um, acquisition is related to um, 
temporary storage of a memory. So you have an early temporary storage um, and then consolidation is more permanent storage of a memory. And we'll talk a little bit more about that when we get to the different types of memory. Um, Nick, do you want to start talking about the different types of memory? Sure. Um, so when, well, first let's, let's kind of take a step back and, 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 and kind of give a little background here. I mean, some of the early research that was done on in memory, a lot of the assumptions were that memory was just like this, this one thing. It was, and it was all stored in, in, in one place in the brain. Um, you know, it, it wasn't really known whether or not, you know, certain types of memory, be it, you know, uh, you know, your memory of like a, like a motor movement or memory of like a, a past event, uh, like say in your childhood, if those memories were stored in different places in the brain or where they were all stored in one place. Um, so what kind of got that to change was some of the research that was done in the early 1900s with uh, le uh, brain lesions or with people who uh, suffered traumatic brain injuries. Um, so one of the, the biggest and you know, most famous cases was patient HM who had um, severe epilepsy and he went to uh, a surgeon um, and they decided to um, do a what's called a bilateral hippocampal resection uh, essentially they just cut out both lobes of this hippocampus and as we talked about in last uh, last episode hippocampus is responsible for um, the um, it's long-term declarative memory mm -hmm. and just it, it's like the first stop in where memories are eventually so they go through your hippocampus and that's where they get integrated into your brain and then they get stored in different parts of the brain. So what happened is they cut out they cut out his hippocampus and the guy was unable to form new memories and he also suffered some um, some uh, retrograde amnesia, which is um, memory, uh, memory of past events. Uh, and in case you're wondering, anterograde amnesia is uh, unable to form memory in the future, new memories. Um, so in that regard, they, they, what they found was that, okay, so, you know, this guy, he, he can't, you know, form new memories, but he still has memories of past events. He could also form new motor memories. So, for example, you could probably teach him how to play the piano. Uh, he wouldn't tell you, he couldn't tell you when specifically you learned to play the piano, but he could learn to play the piano nonetheless. So... What that told scientists and researchers was that obviously there are different types of memories, they're stored in different places, and this kind of gave us the general idea of what is called the multiple, multiple memory system hypothesis. And actually, just as a note, that actually is, that research was way more recent, so it wasn't early 1900s, that was like the 70s or 80s. Um, Right, so mm -hmm. he had, I, I think he had his surgery in the 50s, and... Was it the 50s? I think it was the 50s. Okay, but they did studies on him right. for many, many years, right. yeah. and they had done uh, research on, on animals before before mm -hmm. that, mm -hmm. um, but he was like the first, that w uh, first definitive human subject that was just... The readout on his, on, his ex on his condition was just so profound, and so, I mean, you could just... He was demonstrably... It was just a good subject right. for, for studying. So the reason, and the reason is because it was a surgery, so they knew, mm -hmm. well, they thought they knew exactly where the surgical cuts were made. Later it was, um, it was a little different than what they thought, but still it was essentially, you know, his whole hippocampus, which is a very specific region of the brain, um, which is why it was such a, I don't know, landmark case, mm -hmm. um, landmark study. So He was cured of his epilepsy, in case you guys want to know that too. Mm -hmm. so it did have that effect. 
Um, so moving into the different types of memories, we'll start with sensory memories. Sure. So sensory memories, um, it's suspected that we have five for our five different senses at the least. So, or five different, you know, major senses. Um, so for sight, sound, smell, touch, and taste. Um, but the two best studied are the icon and the echo. So the icon is the sensory memory for, um, visual information. Um, it lasts like seven milliseconds or something. It's, it's incredibly small. Um, it's actually really, uh, which is why you probably have never, there's not really any anecdotal way to explain that it's there. Um, but it, um, the idea actually behind it being so, so brief is that you, if you had a longer um, icon, then when your eyes flitted around a room, you would be impeded by the memory of what you had just seen. Um, so you have this really brief icon that, you know, if you, if something caught the attention, your attention when you flitted to it, you know, you might quickly flip back if it was like something dangerous, but that's about all the icon does. Um, the echo, though, your auditory memory, so it's a bit longer. I can't remember the exact length. Do you remember, Nick? Um, I'm trying to look at my notes here. It's still a few seconds. It's not, I think it's like one to two seconds or something. Yeah, it's not much longer. It's, it's basically as long as it takes to get through the average sentence. Um, so that's the function of the echo, is if you basically couldn't remember auditory information, um, for a long enough time, you wouldn't be able to get through sentences. Like you wouldn't be able to remember where someone's sentence started by the time they finished. Um, or like, you know, I, there's an, this is a great example is like, if you've ever been tuned out, um, to someone, like I remember reading in a textbook, there's an example of like, you're a teenager and you know, your mom comes in and you're not listening. And then she says, you know, are you even listening to me? You can play that actually back in your head, even if you hadn't been listening and and maybe remember the last few words of the sentence and find context for it. So that's what the echo does. Um, and there is evidence that there's, uh, people have studied haptic memory a little bit, which is um, touch memory, um, but your smell, smell and taste sensory memories have been less well studied, so. Yeah, so in, a lot of people, when they talk about sensory memory or kind of this first stage of, of, of memory formation, um, they put, sensory memory what's called a sensory register it's just mm -hmm. like a it, it's like this i don't know it's this idea of a specific spot or group of spots where sensory memories are integrated integrated and just kind of put in place before they are given context which could potentially be the thalamus right because the thalamus is kind of the relay station for all sensory inputs and mm -hmm. then those get sent to various parts of the brain depending on what you know needs to be done with them. Mm -hmm. um but when we talk when we were talking about just memory in general just the sensory register the sensory memory is like the first the first mm -hmm. stopping point mm -hmm. in the entire process right and then we have what's called working memory right. um so i mean there's a couple places we could start here um i guess we can just start by talking about what working memory is mm -hmm. so with working memory you incorporate um it's it's an incorporation of sensory memory and then previously stored memory basically right. and that's that's really that's a really mm -hmm. important distinction because a lot of people assume that it's just a you know it's just utilization of a past experience rather mm -hmm. than so-called new stuff it's it's 
basically, regardless of whether it's new or not, it's just you using memory to do stuff with. So to give an example, like I, a lot, a lot of people use the example of chess, but not everyone has played chess, including myself. So I use the more like, I guess, commonplace example of of sitting in a classroom. Most people at some point in their lives have been in school. So if you are um, sitting in a classroom, you're gonna be most likely, if you're paying any attention, utilizing working memory. So what that's gonna be doing is you're gonna be intaking information that your teacher is talking about. You're gonna be utilizing, if there are any visuals on like a chalkboard or a PowerPoint, you're gonna be intaking that information. You're gonna be intaking the information that the teacher is talking about. And you're also going to be pulling from past experience to compare that. So, you know, if you had a teacher talking about George Washington and you know a little bit about George Washington, you're probably drawing on some of that information to better understand what that teacher's talking about. Um, so that is sort of the gist of what working memory is. Um, and there's a really important component of working memory, which is the magic number. Um, it's, oh God, now I'm forgetting. It's seven plus or minus two. Yeah. So, um, so there is a researcher, a psychologist that came up with the number seven plus or minus two, um, which is your, which is the average person's working memory capacity, which sounds really small. The idea behind this is that you can form chunks of information. Um, so this, so what is a chunk of information? Um, if you just think about like a word, a word like car is one chunk of information, but it's made up of bits of information like, you know, what cars look like, how they drive, um, the sensation of driving one. Um, there's a lot of information, bits of information stored into that chunk. But if you don't know English, then the word car is essentially meaningless. That chunk has almost no bits associated with it except for the letters in the word. Um, and if you, for example, are Chinese and you're used to Chinese characters and you're looking at English letters, then car is maybe three chunks because it's three individual letters and each of those letters is a chunk for you. Um, so the implications of this are that like people learning um, introductory classes, for example, in college tend to be the hardest for people because they're really unfamiliar with the terms um, and they're not able to chunk as much information. So when Nick and I talk about neuroscience, for example, when we say frontal lobe, we think of, um, you know, probably the prefrontal cortex, among which we can divide that into like the orbitofrontal cortex and the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. And we have in working memory and we have all of this information that we associate with that that's included in a chunk. Um, but, you know, some people listening probably don't have that same information, which makes a lot of the stuff that we're saying harder to decipher for you maybe than it is for us sure and um kind of another way that you know chunking can be thought of is when you're studying and you're trying to remember a you know specific list of of say letters or words um it, it, I, I like to look at it uh, also as a really good way of, of remembering like a string of numbers um so if you have a, a string of single digit numbers you can actually chunk like say three of those numbers into one number in itself so like one two three would be the number 123 and then the next series of numbers can be chunked into a three-digit number and then you can you can just memorize 
the list of, of, of numbers that way um, by ch- chunking. Mm-hmm. Chunking mm-hmm. the information. You are taking bits of information and chunking them into bigger pieces. Yes. Easier to remember. But importantly, that only works if you can make it meaningful. So, like, if you right. can do something like one, two, three, that's easy to remember. Right. But if you're just an individual, you know, letters, then it's just bits of information. Right. And it's important to understand that working memory is 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 predicated on, on context and in mm-hmm. your ability to make sense of what right. you're, you're, you're working with. And this is why, like, people that use... Um, Oh, I forget what it's called. Um, but, it, you know, learning strategies that, like, involve imagery and all of these different... When they add context to the material that they're learning, they tend to do better. Yes. Um, um, uh, it's... Oh gosh. It's... They wrote a book about this. If you're interested, it's called Moonwalking on Einstein. Right. Well, and, that, and that's a little different because that's specifically for learning sequential information. All right. Well, I, as I know it, it's mostly for learning. It's it's used for learning sequences. So, I mean, you essentially walk through a room, you put something in that room, but you know, it has to do with sequentially walking through. Right. So you can you can walk through a room in a in a in in have you know walking through a room is a, in in a in a sequence of events as you're going through the room, but you can. In your mind. In By your, the way, we didn't your, say this. This is not, you're right. not, so basically not you create like an imaginary house with these, or not, no, actually it's a, it's, okay, so it's, it's a house in your head, but it's something, it's a place you're familiar with. It's called a memory palace. And you walk through, and yeah, basically it's, it's a trick for learning sequential information. Um, but, um, but also, I mean, there's, uh, so I actually forgot to say this before, but there's been a lot of interesting studies with chunking and how people chunk. So people that are experts in in a subject or for example like chess this has been well studied in chess um uh novices in chess can only can hold a lot smaller amounts of information because they're less capable of chunking all of these pieces of the board together they see the individual pieces basically um which gives them you know a storage capacity of five to nine seven plus or minus two um, which isn't as effective, but people that are really experienced in chess can sort of form these large chunks in the board, and so they're much more able to read it, and that makes them a lot better at chess. Um, and this applies to really anything, so it's really, um, I don't know, relevant, I guess, to anything you do. It's really interesting and really relevant to anything you do. Um, so yeah, that is working memory. Unless, do you have anything else to add? Uh no, uh, I mean, except, you know, if you guys are really interested in kind of learning, um, there, there's been a lot of research being done on, on, on strategies to, I guess, memorize a bunch of, you know, information for, say, tests and things like mm-hmm, that. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of really interesting strategies online. We detailed one, the memory palace. Um, it doesn't necessarily have to be, for, uh, you know, in, in a sequence of events. But uh, as I said, Moonwalking with Einstein's great book that can teach you how to how some of the the best uh, work, the memory champions. There's actually a competition for this. How they are able to memorize a bunch of just random information and be able to recall that, mm-hmm. you know, uh, you know, in within an hour mm-hmm. of after learning it, um, it it's, it's incredible. And mm-hmm. it might be something that you guys could utilize in your study. Mm-hmm. Um. So moving on to the big one, which is long-term memory. Oh yes. Um, so long-term memory, uh, it can be, well, so it can be declarative or non-declarative, right. um, which basically means, like, a declarative memory is like biographical information. It's stuff that you can talk about. Um, verbal memories, 
and so on. Um, Non-declarative is mostly procedural memory. Like, mostly you're talking about procedural memory, which is, like, how you know how to ride a bike. Like, you can't, you cannot talk to someone. I, I certainly can't talk to someone about how you ride a bike. I mean, there's certain things you can say, like you put your hands on the handles, but the actual act of riding a bike is extremely hard to describe. That is a procedural memory. Um, or, you know, really like tying your shoes, procedural memory. All of those sort of repetitive actions, those are procedural memories. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> um, so, so um, one important aspect of long-term memory and in relation to working memory is that, as, as we said before, working memory deals with learned information, uh, learned past information and new information. So in order to bring that information, the learned information to the, to, into your working memory, you have to recall it. Mm -hmm. And that, it, that recall is taken from your long-term memory mm -hmm. store. Mm -hmm. And we should talk about, um, so we should talk about where in the brain we're talking about here. It's a little more, I actually, we probably should have mentioned that working memories in the prefrontal cortex. We kind of glazed over that, but in long-term memory, um, I think the reason we're going to talk about the regions that, that are, um, associated with it is because it's so, such a fundamental part of studying it. Um, so. And they're very different from each other. Mm -hmm. So with long-term memory, um, long-term declarative memory we're really talking about a region called the hippocampus which we talked about in our last episode if you guys heard that um so the hippocampus um you actually have two the hippocampi there's one in either lobe of the brain um or yeah um either hemisphere, I, either hemisphere thank you that's what i was trying to think of either hemisphere of the brain um so where was I going? The hippocampus. Um, yeah, we can stop. Yeah, we'll stop for a second. I don't know. I don't know why I actually knew what I wanted to say. I'll keep going. So, one second. Collecting myself. So, it's believed that initial memory storage occurs in the hippocampus. Um, this is where memories are. We talked about the word encoding. So, they're encoded um, and and temporarily stored here temporary is on the order of about two years um so we talked about patient hm earlier and he had um one of the reasons for this is he had memory loss when they removed his hippocampi his memory loss was about two years prior right. to this event so he couldn't remember biographical information like what he did for christmas or anything like that from for about two years um so that is you know, what's thought to occur in the hippocampus, but, um, there's also more permanent storage in the cortex. Um, we've talked about that the cortex is the outer region of your brain. It's like the surface of the brain. Um, it's responsible for generally more complex functioning, higher order brain, functions. higher order brain functions, whatever that means. <laughs> so, um, so, and actually I think there's, there's some debate about, you know, if it, starts in the hippocampus and then goes to the cortex or there's actually an idea that it's it's in the hippocampus and the cortex but the hippocampus is just required for retrieval so it's stored in both in um it's it may be stored in the hippocampus briefly and then in the cortex um it may just be stored in the cortex and hippocampus is just required for retrieval it's really hard to parse out um storage and retrieval a lot of times 
so um so yeah so those are the two like major brain regions that we're talking about when we talk about um uh declare yeah declarative memory storage um i will say actually there's some interesting imaging studies that show that when people have to retrieve information that it it is um that the same brain regions where that information would have been encoded are activated which is um interesting and kind of indicates that that um the information may actually also initially be stored in the cortex so um and i think we can take a quick break take a break To neuroscience undressed. So um, before we took a break, we were talking about where long-term memory, declarative long-term memory occurs. Um, and we'll just talk a, a little bit about those mechanisms. Um, so just briefly and broadly, the mechanism for cellular mechanism for long-term memory storage is long-term potentiation uh, we're not going to go into it we're not going to talk about what long-term potentiation is just briefly we'll just say that it is um it's a way of strengthening the the connections between neurons so that is how long-term memory occurs you strengthen the connections between neurons um so this is all titled under something called plasticity neuronal plasticity so basically the idea of neuronal plasticity is that your brain is constantly changing and evolving um, and it's capable of like physically shifting around the connections in your brain physically move and change and grow and deteriorate um, and this is particularly true when you're talking about the mechanisms of memory right and you can kind of think of it this way have you ever noticed how you when you're studying or basically when you're when you're or reading a book or anything um, you when you go back over that information, it has become easier to recall the specifics of it. Um, and you do that over and over and over again. It gets to the point where you can, you know, after you've done this numerous times, you can recall this information, you know, probably at, at, you know, at 70, 80 percent mm -hmm. accuracy, mm -hmm. whereas mm -hmm. initially maybe you could recall it maybe 5 percent. Mm -hmm. That is thought to be due to the strengthening of synapses mm -hmm. over time. Mm -hmm. You have created a strong uh, well not really i guess yeah you've created mm -hmm. a new not necessarily a new synaptic connection or but the like the synaptic connections that were there initially are now strengthened together and it now becomes easier for you to recall this information mm -hmm. to a high degree of accuracy and that is kind of what is being thought to be the underlying mechanism for yeah well as i understand it that's that's related mostly to systems consolidation I believe I'm not sure but I do want to stress because I think this is one of the coolest things about the brain I do want to stress that um, changes can occur a lot faster than that as well I mean when you are learning information you're having rapid changes in synapses in the brain
And with this next segment, we're kind of going to go into, not we're kind of going to go to, we are going to go over some of, uh, some really cool uh, psychological studies that have been done. And uh, admittedly, I am not super familiar with this uh, subject, but Rachel is. So she's going to uh, take us through that. Yeah. So I'm going to talk about, really, I just want to hit a couple key studies that talk about how human memory is flawed. Um, I think a lot of us don't realize how bad our memory is. Um, and it turns out that um, basically they think that every time you recall a memory, it changes a little. Um, it's becoming a different version of that original event. Um, I should also mention that we don't record memories exactly as they happened. Our memories are not not like videotapes of the world around us. They're they're a sort of consolidation of bits and pieces that we paid attention to. Um, so our memory is very flawed. And this has been really important in um, eyewitness testimony cases. Um, so a lot of people have gone to jail based on eyewitness testimonies um, because juries find eyewitness testimonies really convincing. Um, and eyewitness testimonies might not be the best source of information. Um, In fact, from what I understand, they are consistently bad. Yes. So, um, although I will say one of these studies um, has sort of been called into question because I think some people have been finding conflicting reports, but I haven't seen how that's all averaged out. Anyway, but so Loftus. Conflicting reports about conflicting reports. So Loftus, yeah. So the Loftus, so, um, so Elizabeth Loftus. Uh, really like has dug into this whole eyewitness testimony thing you know how reliable is this how reliable are our memories and she came up with something called the misinformation effect um, so she she did this study um, I actually can't remember if this is Loftus or Loftus and Palmer but either way she did this study um, and demonstrated that that people's memory is subject to distortion and the way that she did this is she had them review a videotape of two cars hitting each other um, and and people's, so she would ask people what average speed they thought the car was going. Um, but when she asked, she would say when the cars hit, when the cars smashed, when the cars crashed. And people estimated the speed very differently based on the verb choice. Um, so saying hit, you know, might have gotten like a 50 mile per hour response. Whereas saying the word like smashed might have gotten like 70 mile per hour response. Is that related to priming at all? Like these people were primed, um, like psychologically? Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. So, yes, that is related to priming. Um, so, I know Nick and I have talked a bit about priming. You're pretty interested in priming. Well, I think so, if you really want to cool talk about it. it. It's just uh, priming is it's, it's basically, um, I, I guess, sub or uh, I guess unconscious, unconscious influences on your, I guess, your ability to recall what actually happened well and not just in memory so like there have been studies for example like if you're trying to do a negotiation mm -hmm. and you sit in a harder chair right. you're actually more likely to like fight harder in the negotiation and get a better result than if you sit in like a soft chair um so it's basically influencing whether your personality is harder or softer i mean there's really weird things i know there was a study that um like the idea of like a like, so we say something smells fishy. Um, we have that phrase. Um, people are actually more likely. There have been studies that have shown that people are more likely to be suspicious if there's a fishy smell in the room. Like, there's weird, right. weird yeah. ways that your environment um, primes not just, like, memories, but 
uh, your attitudes and I've done it in, in um, you know shopping like mm-hmm. your shopping experiences as companies will you know orient their shelves or the just the shopping experience in a certain way to prime you uh, to have a more favorable opinion about the store or more favorable mm-hmm. opinion about what you're buying and it makes you more likely to buy it um, I know that uh, they've also done um, some research on you know, uh, priming someone with a, a specific word, like maybe say good or pretty or something mm-hmm. like that, and then report the attractiveness of somebody. And what do you know? If, yeah. You know, the more positive those words are beforehand, um, the more positive they're, or the more attractive the, you know, report of the, of the person that they're looking at is. Yeah. So, yeah, priming is... is um, it's pretty neat. It, it is. I mean, it's really... It's pervasive and it's kind of crazy how easily manipulated humans, human brains, human minds are. It's probably overblown, but it's cool to think about. It is. It is. Um, So anyway, yes. So this experiment, yes, it is. It is in a sense priming, Um, but it is an example of how memory can be distorted. Um, Like, you know, I mean, if you're talking about police investigations, like their police will ask leading questions to try to get the responses that they want it's actually a huge problem with them children so uh, children have a they're really bad at what's called reality testing um they have a hard time grasping what actually happened and what didn't and they're much more likely to sort of make things up based on not intentionally necessarily but just you know if given like sort of priming questions they might form false memories based on that um which is really a huge problem um if you're like putting a child through like a police investigation you've got to be really careful about the way that you deal with it because they're more there's a personality trait called suggestibility um it's just basically how easily primed you are and children are very 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 suggestible um but anyway going on to another loftus study um there was like a really a, a pretty pretty intense period um, in the like late 1900s uh, where therapists were um, really bought into this idea of of recovered memories. Oh, oh, so you mean repressed memories? Yes, repressed and then recovered though. So, but they thought like there was this huge thing where where therapists basically were really trying to dig out um, repressed memories. Um, and again, we talked about priming and suggestibility and people that are really suggestible um, are more likely to actually like maybe engineer mm-hmm. a memory um, if their therapist is trying to like using really leading questions to try to tease one out. Uh, this is a real, well, thanks to Loftus, we know that this is real. So she actually like wanted to, this, there was a court case where some girl, uh, I think she, she accused her father of I think it was murdering her friend or something there was but it was like you know all in this repress it was all coming from this repressed memory that had been like quote uncovered during therapy um and Loftus was you know consulted on this case and she was a little bit um unsure about it so she wanted to test it um so she had people come in she said that you know I've talked to your family about about your childhood and um she was like I wonder if you can remember this this memory where you were lost in the mall um, she made sure she actually did check with these people's families, made sure they had never been lost in the mall. Um, but but 25 percent of people she was 
not only did they believe they were lost in the mall, but started recalling specific details from being in the lost in a mall as a child. And this had never occurred. Right. So they started talking about, you know, the people that they were with and like their shoe fell off and um, X, Y, Z happened on the escalator and all these specific details, all of which had never occurred. Um, and not only that, but the memories actually interestingly strengthened over time. So we talked about how every time you recall a memory, it strengthens. This was a long-term study. I can't remember how long she did it for and at what intervals, but she basically kept calling people in there and having them recall it. And the memory got stronger and stronger and more vivid over time. And people became more convinced of this very false memory. Mm -hmm. um, objectively false. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, it's, it, I mean, it had a lot of implications and, um, certainly for the ethics of therapy and, and so on. And, um, actually when you talk about, um, the most famous character with multiple personality disorder, which is Sybil, there's actually a lot of compelling evidence that it, uh, that her multiple personality disorder was sort of manufactured by her therapist. And that a lot, she created a lot of false memories, um, because her therapist actually gave her drugs that made her more highly suggestible. And then, um, would ask her really leading questions about abuse that she had when she was a child, you know, like, like, uh, I can't, I mean, there's recordings of it. It's really interesting. If you're interested in that at all in multiple personality disorder, you should look it up because a lot of psychologists think that it's actually entirely manufactured by right. therapists. On even, even the, the term multiple personality disorder is inaccurate. It's what, dissociative? It, it's been changed. Right. So now it's dissociative identity disorder. It was multiple personality disorder. Um, and I guess kind of going going back to the, you know, what Rachel was talking about with, with the um, manufactured memories, I, I, I can kind of recall, I remember, the, what is the famous study about the, the, uh, the basketball and the gorilla? Yeah. So oh, like, yeah. The, like, YouTube video. Well, is that yeah, what you're talking so about? Like yeah. People, People are at, in an audience are asked to count the uh, number of dribbles that somebody, uh, a team of basketball players, um, they're, they're dribbling a basketball and people in the audience are asked to count how many times the ball hits the ground. And they are so focused on that that they don't see that there's a man in a gorilla costume that has come onto the floor and is standing right in front of them, but nobody notices that he's there. Um, and when they are at, at the end of the, the dribbling session, they are asked, you know, how many times they dribbled, and people will respond with an accurate number of how many dribbles, but then the, the experimenter will ask, well, did you see the gorilla? People will ask, or will say, no, I didn't, but there's a plant, somebody who is working with the experimental group that says, oh, you know, I did, and then mm -hmm. people all around will report that they did see the mm -hmm. gorilla, mm -hmm. and you have to ask the question, are they lying, or do did they actually manufacture a memory? A memory, mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. And you think about that in, in, in a lot of, you know, instances of, you know, eyewitness reporting. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's like, you know, people who might have not have actually seen what had happened mm -hmm. might have just manufactured something in their mind and, and are reporting that. And, yeah. you know, it, it might very well seem real to them, but it, yeah. it's not. And I don't know. That's a yeah. problem. Yeah. Which, and this is a potentially a great lead into sort of flashbulb memories, which are really common, yeah. essentially false memories. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're, they're rarely accurate, but people, but the, the thing is people report them as being extremely accurate. Right. Um, they, people believe that they absolutely, without a shadow of a doubt, know what happened during certain events. 
Right, so like a traumatic event. I know Rachel was talking about when we had talked about this earlier was uh, not like reporting about like what happened on 9/11. 9/11. And I, I kind of think of a flashbulb memory as almost like um, it's almost like a like a, a shortcut between. Uh, it's almost like you're skipping long-term potentiation. Almost, you're just kind of. Well, like, are, well, you're are, not skipping. Well, you're, you're not, not, not skipping, skipping it, but it's, it's happening much more, well, much more at a, at a much more rapid pace than it would yes. normally. So we we talked about in our last episode this region of the brain called the amygdala, which is really responsible for emotions. Mm. Um, and and so, flashbulb memories have been most extensively studied in the context of these sort of widespread, um, uh, widespread traumas and tragedies like 9/11 or JFK getting shot or or whatever these, or um, the Challenger explosion, like these are sort of the most common events in which flashbulb memories have been um, recorded. And, and most people um, probably do have some memory like this. They, you, I know, I remember, I at least presume that I remember what happened in, like during my day in 9-11. Like, I think I remember those events. Um, but as it turns out, it's very likely that I don't. And you're probably sitting there saying, I remember exactly what happened on this day. Um, I did this, I was with these people, this is what I heard and when I found out. Probably not true. Um, so basically what the amygdala does is it just hyperactivates your hippocampus and you form um, this really intense emotional memory. Um, but in studies, basically a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of studies have shown that what people think they were doing, there's evidence that that is like what they thought they did. There's very strong evidence to the contrary, video evidence that they were not doing what they thought they were doing on that day. There's, you know, um, paper trails, like when, based on when they left work or when they signed into work, um, there's strong evidence that people remember these events completely differently than they happened. And I, my question for you, Rachel, is so say I, I do have a you know so-called flashbulb memory, or there I, I have some event that uh, I can say that I recalled, like some sort of traumatic event. So, like say I, I witnessed a car accident, mm-hmm. and in the immediate aftermath of it, or you know, in the, maybe the next year after that, I have kind of a neutral feeling about it, mm-hmm. and I can recall it you know a certain way. But say you know over the years, I you know I have talked to people about it. I've maybe gone to uh and and talk to you know I've, I've talked to people about it and that that has framed it differently in my mm-hmm. mind so now right. i look at it as a more traumatic experience than i might have originally thought it as mm-hmm. and is are my new feelings on the event even though they were initially neutral is that now shaping my recall of the event in a way to make it seem more traumatic than it actually was uh I mean, that's very possible, but so that's, that's a very real possibility. I don't think it would technically be considered a flashbulb memory though. Um, right. Okay. Yeah. So, so slightly different topic, but yes. So, I mean, memories are very, very malleable basically. I mean, they're designed to be the mechanisms behind them. The cellular mechanisms behind them are so, um, rapid and malleable. And this is the way that our, that we're designed to sort of learn is to have, um, but I mean, I guess it could be a flashbulb memory, though. I mean, because like, you 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 have this. You you say that you have this. You know, I can tell you exactly what happened, when it happened, and how I was feeling at the time. Um, and maybe it, it's still a flashbulb, but like at it, 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 the initial point in time, you had a neutral feeling about it. And as you've gone through life and you've recalled it more and more and talked to more people about it, you've developed a new, I guess, context for for it and have a different. 
opinion about it or a different feeling about it. And now in subsequent uh, you know, recall of it, it, is, it might seem more traumatic or it, certain events might have happened in a much more traumatic seeming way than they did initially. So you're actually, well, so when you're talking about this, you're kind of getting into something which is some people don't even think that a flashbulb memory should be its own distinction. Okay. So, but that under, I think under the qualifications in which it has been sort of labeled and studied, that technically would not be. Okay. I believe. Okay. Although I'm not an expert. Neither of us are experts. No. We're just, we're just a couple, we're just of, a couple of nerds that are interested. yourself. Okay, fine. I'm a nerd. I, I'm just a dude being a guy. That was nonsense. So, um, no, we're just a couple of students, young individuals interested and excited about neuroscience, not experts. Don't hold us to that standard. We are wrong, probably. <laughs> Basically about everything. Don't listen to us. I'm just kidding. Yeah. That's not true. We're educated. We know things. Some. Um, so, we try to only talk about things that we know about. So, um, yeah, and I guess... Um, so moving on from that, um, I actually, I guess one thing I, I, so you sort of talked about, um, well, I'll go to this interference. We, we didn't really talk about interference and decay and memory. So, um, there are sort of two thoughts about the way that we lose memories. One is interference. One is decay. Um, so decay is basically just a classic forgetting. Like that's like, um, if you, if you're like, Oh, I've got to like remember this. This doesn't happen anymore because we all have iPhones and don't need to like type out actual numbers. But you know, back in the olden days, if you can remember this, when you like might have to look up a number and punch it in, then punch it into a phone, and you've got to sit there and like remember it. Um, 